any given material's toughness is defined by the amount of energy it can take before it gives way. How or whether toughness is related to strength and hardness is not the kind of thing that most people think about on a day-to-day -day basis, or at all really, but the question can be of vital importance to designers and engineers. After all, they say that a spider's silk is stronger than steel, so why aren't skyscrapers being made of spiderwebs? Well, that's what today's guest, Professor Steve Yalasov, is here to tell us. From Cambridge, Massachusetts, I'm Orad Reshef. And from Montreal, I'm Jess Corbet. And this is yet another science show, a show where we discuss science from the points of view of a scientist and a layman. This week on episode six, Material Toughness. Yes, we are going to talk about material toughness, and joining us live to tell us all about it is Professor Steve Yalasov from the University of Michigan, where he studies material properties and material science. Welcome to the show, Steve. Well, hi there. I'm from the uh, Material Science and Engineering Department here at Michigan. And using this expertise, uh, I know that you teach an introduction material science course, am I right? Uh, yeah, so I've been teaching the introductory material science course for about, uh, oh, since 1996. Wow. So you know a thing or two about material toughness then? Well, yeah, I need to teach um, all about me mechanical properties, um, how you strengthen materials, and why materials fail. And central in all of that is an understanding of the concept of toughness. So I spend a lot of time each year trying to explain this concept of toughness to sophomores. Actually, that's perfect then because most of our listeners aren't even sophomores. <laughs> um, so why not just sort of give us, a, give us sort of a rundown of just what material toughness is? Okay, well, first I need to start by saying I am not an expert in the field of toughness. I've written a few papers about controlling toughness and managing, um, you know, the, the toughness versus the strength of a material, which are, you know, trade-offs. All things in materials are trade-offs. But with toughness, usually as you increase toughness, you do it at the expense of the strength of the material. Wait, wait, strength and toughness aren't the same thing? No, strength and toughness are not the same thing. Whoa. <laughs> I mean, you'd think, like, you know, in science, like in physics, there's always different things like force and power. Like, they all sound like the same thing, but are very specific definitions. So I guess what you're telling me yeah, is... that's right. Yeah, strength and toughness have just different definitions for something. That's right. So strength is how much stress can you put on a material and not have it break. And so when material scientists look at a material... They put it into a machine that kind of looks like a torture rack from the medieval times. <laughs> you grab each end and you start to pull. And you pull and pull and pull, and so the material, just like a person, starts to stretch. Okay. You measure how much the person stretches as a function of how hard you pull, how much force is applied. So you get a force displacement curve. Mm -hmm. And, you know... Physicists know all about this because that's the same as Hooke's Law. Remember oh, those springs? Yeah, Hooke's Law for a spring. a spring. Yeah, the... You get force versus displacement. So strain is just the change in length divided by the original length. And stress is the force per unit area across that's normal to the direction of the force. So you turn a force displacement curve into a stress strain curve. Then you get to something weird that engineers do. <laughs> engineers define something as engineering stress strain as oh opposed my. to true stress strain. Engineering stress strain 
is when you always reference it to the initial strain or to the initial length. And why, why would they do that? It's just convenient. <laughs> <laughs> okay. As you know, everything is in invented and you invent things to make your life easier, right? right. So you invent okay. Bessel functions, not because you want to torture scores of undergraduate physics students. <laughs> you invent Bessel functions because it makes sense in cylindrical coordinate systems. Mm -hmm. It's actually easier. It's just, you know, another infinite series. Right. Not that we're calling engineers lazy. So no engineers, don't write us. You no, guys no. are very hardworking. We yeah. wouldn't do that. No, no, no. This isn't about lazy. This is, this is something that just like what physicists do. I mean, come on, you know the old joke about how did the physicist cross the road, right? No, how? Well, you start with a spherical chicken. <laughs> yeah. Right? So physicists are, the, are, are the, the, the laziest of all in thinking of these really simple little models that magically work as well as they do. So engineers look at this, and if you look at strain, for instance, engineering strain is always the change in length divided by the original length. You know, that makes sense because you can then use that number and apply it and get a sense of intuition when you look at anything like, oh, man, that was really stretched a long way because that strain is like 200%. Oh, okay, wait, I think I'm getting this. But 200% related to what? It's got to be the original. Well, what this all means is when you look at these plots, they don't look like normal functions. They have, they're multi-value. So they go up and then they go down. Whereas true strain would always be monotonically increasing with strain. And it's an important designation, and although we usually cover true stress and true strain in the course, we don't overemphasize it because it's, it's more complicated than you need to worry about. Um, just let me see if I'm getting this. Let me see if I'm getting this. So toughness has a certain amount of elasticity involved? Like it can sort of bend with, with certain stresses? Well, let's get right to the, to the point. What is toughness? Toughness is how much energy you dump into a material before it fails right? to make it fail. So yeah. toughness is really a energy density. So it's the energy per unit volume of a material needed to make it fail, meaning break apart. Yeah. Okay. And so something can be very strong and brittle, and something else can be a little softer but tough, right? Right. Let's think of a spring. When you pull a spring, right, it... If you look at stress versus strain, or even if you look at force yeah. versus displacement, what right. you see is a straight line, right? You see a right. linear, monotonically increasing line. And if you plot the slope of that line, what do you get for a spring? Um, a straight line? No, you, you get a number, but what is that number? It's got uh. a special name in physics. It's oh, oh it's from Hooke's Law, right? It's uh, the spring constant. Constant, you bet. The spring constant. Well, in materials, we convert that to stress and strain to make it uh, dimensionless and a meaningful dimension, which is the, you know, the stress is simply the force per unit mm -hmm. area. It's the unit of the Pascal. So one Newton per meter squared is a Pascal. Mm -hmm. And it's the force being applied to a small cross-sectional area. And so when you look at the slope of that, it's usually a straight line for an elastic material. But instead of the spring constant, we call it the modulus of the material. Oh. And in tension, that's a special modulus called the Young's modulus, often denoted capital as capital e. e. Right. right. Now, if a material is brittle, I mean, then 
what's going to happen is it'll, you'll be on this straight line, you'll pull, you'll pull, you'll pull, and it'll break. Snap. And that's Snap. just like a piece of chalk. Take a piece of chalk and pull it. You pull, yeah. you pull, you pull, and all of a sudden it snaps. It just breaks right, it down, right, right? right. That's called brittle fracture. Other things when you pull, they don't break. They start to deform and bend. And that's called plastic deformation or yielding. Yielding, right. So would you say that's something that yields a lot? Would you say that that is something that is tough? That could be. Like the spring, for instance. The spring, for instance, it's not very strong, but it's very tough. No, actually, actually, springs are, springs are very strong, but they are not usually tough. Usually they do break. Oh, usually really? they okay. snap off brittily. It's just there. So what's a good example of something that's very tough? I'll, I'll get to that. All right. So let's first talk. So we talked about what... Um, we talked about what a modulus is. We talked about what brittle is. Ductile is something like gold or silver. Mm -hmm. Silver, you can hammer it to very thin. You can extrude it. You can pull it. So I wanted to ask before we went on. So for something with a large modulus, that just means that as you add more stress, it'll expand more on average? Something that has a high modulus is something that we say is very stiff. So that means that the slope is very, very large. So it takes a huge increase in stress to make a small increase. But in, in, in terms of a physical thing, though, that's something that is uh, has a very high modulus or is stiff. Okay. So you can okay. imagine a very stiff spring, right? Does you can put a lot of force on it and it doesn't deform that much. So that would be like the spring in a car, right? Right. Oh, you know, yeah, you, you okay. need to, right. And the opposite of that would be like a slinky. Like a slinky like you just pull is a very soft no spring, right? Yeah. yeah. And. This analogy carries almost right down to the atomic level. Really? So the springs in a material are the interatomic potentials, the bonds between the materials. The only problem is springs are harmonic and real bonds are anharmonic. So the analogy of the spring works pretty close. And actually, when people do a lot of theoretical modeling, you know, the, the rubber meets the road with the interatomic potential. That's what's really hard to actually figure out mathematically. But people are doing a huge amount of work in that. So anyway, you pull these things. Some materials like, say, you know, um, aluminum, you can stretch aluminum. You've yeah. probably done yeah. this yourself. And the thing is, when you, if it's elastic, if when you pull it, if you don't pull it too far, you let go, it comes back to the original length. Then it's called elastic. If it's elastic... You haven't broken any bonds. You haven't changed anything. You just pulled it and then let it go, and it comes right back. Plain this is say, why it's um, used so much in like mountain bike frames density. and stuff. That's right. right? And is so it, if you pull yeah. it too far, when you let go, it's longer than it was. Yeah. That's called permanent deformation. So you always yeah. have a little bit of elastic recovery when you, when you overdrive it, but yeah. a lot of permanent deformation. So they define strength as... How far can you pull something before it starts to permanently, plastically deform? And that's okay. called the yield strength. Okay? Okay. Okay. Now, some materials break before they start deforming, yeah. which is why we call them very brittle materials. Right, okay. And they may not be very tough. So look at a stress-strain curve. You've got stress which is an energy density of sorts, right? It's a, a two-dimensional energy density versus strain, which is dimensionless. If you look at the area under the stress-strain curve up to the point where the material fails, 
that's a measure of how much energy per square area you dumped into that material before it failed. That's what toughness is. Okay, you know what? I got a question then. Yeah. We keep hearing about how spider silk is stronger than steel. Yep. But yet I haven't seen a skyscraper built out of spider's webs. I mean... You bet. And that's because it's only strong in tension. It's not strong in compression. Okay. Also, you need a lot yeah. of it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's something that a lot of material scientists do to try to get their papers in science and nature, whereas it's been well known for over a century that spider silk is as strong as steel. It's really disingenuous. They shouldn't be doing that. It's really strong as a function of stress versus strain, but spider silk is really thin. That's why carbon nanotubes have enormous yield strengths because their cross-sectional area is really strong. And that gets into a whole other range of things called plastic constraint. The way that things fail... But Steve, what if you're able to take... Okay, you know how they make silk from ordinary silkworms, right? So I imagine somebody somewhere has a genetically modified worm that can make spider silk. So what if you were to make a material out of that stuff? Oh, that'd be great. If you could make it at the volume, at the cost, and only use it for tension, that would be wonderful. So you could but, use it for like like a, an industrial-grade hammock, right? Sure. There are silk hammocks. You can buy a silk hammock. What, a spider silk hammock? Why not? It's called silk. <laughs> yeah, okay. Right? right? <laughs> Just take a piece of silk and tie it to two trees. You have a silk hammock. Right. right. It yeah. would work really well. But let's get back, let's get back to, to what strength is, because there's different definitions of strength. One is yield strength. How much um, stress do you pull before it starts to, so, so that when you let go, it's not deformed? There's an arbitrary convention for where you set where it begins to yield, and that is 0.2% permanent deformation. Um, that's an arbitrary number. I've asked lots of my friends who are metallurgists why it's that number, and I've been told because any dumbass metallurgist can actually see <laughs> two-tenths of a percent. Right. Yeah. It's just a convention. <laughs> okay, yeah. Because, you know, when does it, act, it actually begins to yield when it first breaks one atomic bomb? Mm-hmm. But that's a really bad thing to use because we know from statistical mechanics that bombs are breaking all the time anyway. Right, yeah. And reforming. All the time. So you need something more macroscopic for the yield strength, and that's what's been agreed upon around the world. Then, as you start to pull it more, it's deforming. Now, what happens when it deforms is it gets longer, but the cross-sectional area gets smaller. You've probably had this experience, right? Right. You can pull something apart, and then in the middle it gets thinner and thinner before it snaps. Like, That's right. I can picture myself doing it with a, uh, like a rubber band, for example. But That's right. Um, I'm trying to think. There's definitely a good example of something where you pull it and... Um, Caramel. Caramel, yeah. Caramel is a great example, actually. Caramel. Well, rubber band. Rubber band is perfect. A fat rubber band, you pull it, it gets skinny. So what happens is the stress goes way up Mm -hmm. because you're still pulling with the same amount of force, but now the cross-sectional area is smaller. So the amount of force per unit area has gone way up. But in engineering stress strain, where you're always referencing it relative to the original stress, or the original length, then it looks like it turns over and goes down. So when you start to pull something, the stress, it looks like the slope flattens out, reaches a peak, and then starts going the other direction, and then it fails. That's the classic ductile stress strain curve. 
the top. Okay, so it becomes like a stress point that gets really soft and pulls apart? It's not getting soft. Actually, the modulus is not changing even after you put in damage. So the modulus is still the interatomic bonds, but the cross-sectional area getting small because we're viewing this as engineering stress, which is sigma over sigma naught, sigma naught being the original stress, it starts to curve over. And where it's a maximum is called the ultimate tensile strength, or sometimes just the tensile strength. Yeah. What that means is that that tensile strength, that's the end of the strength. That's as far as you can stretch this thing before it's going to catastrophically start to fail on you. And it's where you start getting a phenomena called necking in materials, where you really start getting smaller cross-sectional areas. But it still holds together. It hasn't failed at that point, even though it's going to pretty soon. At that point, it's probably likely to bounce back elastically, right? Well, unless it's been pulled too far. Once you reach the yield strength, it's not going to bounce back elastically. Mm, right. You'll always have a tiny amount of elastic recovery. So say you pulled it even beyond the place where it peaks, where it's starting to come back down, and then you let it go before it failed. The plastic recovery would follow the same slope as the original modulus until it got down to a stress of zero, but your deformation would be from zero to that point. This is really hard to do without showing pictures. <laughs> you know, usually I'm, I'm in front of a picture showing all of this. So it's really hard to imagine, but I guess you can imagine something that's a very steep slope that only has a strain of like 1% and then it fails without ever changing its straightness of that slope. That's a very strong but very brittle material. But the area under that curve could be a lot less than something that had a shallow slope and then started to deform and kept deforming, deforming, deforming over 20% and then finally failed. So now you have something that's half the height but four times the width. That's a lot more area under that curve. Right. So if you integrate stress versus strain, you get toughness. That's a measure of toughness. Right. Okay, so bring this down to, like, the street for me here. Like, one instance where you definitely want toughness over strength. Okay. So let's talk about skyscrapers since you, you mentioned that. Right, okay. Um, yeah. Skyscrapers have to be strong enough to be able to hold all the floors above it, right? Right, yeah. And you're given a bunch of different materials you could use. Right. Uh, you could use concrete. Right. Yeah, yeah. But concrete is really strong in compression, but it's not so strong in tension. So right. when the wind starts blowing on this big, huge building, all of a sudden it's going to give a torque and you'll start to introduce tensile stress. I get that. Or if you're in an earthquake zone, that could be really bad. Um, now, they've done a lot of work, too. They, they could probably actually build some of these with concrete now. They've known an awful lot. They have bendable concrete now. Whoa. But, you know, these things all cost money. They sure do. So you choose steel because, well, primarily you choose steel because of cost, right? Let's never forget that things are chosen because of cost. As a friend of mine once said, material scientists are not like the bourgeois. I think it was Cyrano de Bergerac who said, uh, the bourgeois know the price of everything and the value of nothing. The value of nothing, yeah. Right, you've heard that. But material scientists, we know the value of everything and the price of nothing. Because <laughs> okay. most material scientists aren't out there being engineers. But engineers know the price of everything, too. Right. On our last episode, we talked about light bulbs and how originally they used platinum, platinum. for the filaments in the light bulbs. 
and then how they eventually moved towards tungsten because they could save on costs. <laughs> and it ended up being a great material as well anyway, but that wasn't what drove the move away from platinum. It was the cost. Right. Well, I guess. But Edison did come upon tungsten. That was one of his things, and that's why General Electric now owns most of the tungsten reserves around the world, and they're desperately looking for other things to do with tungsten because <laughs> yeah. there's better ways to make light bulbs now. Anyway, um, so we covered what strength is. Strength is how much can you pull something before it starts to deform. Toughness is how much energy do you pump into a material before it fails. There's some other words that people talk about, brittle or ductile. Brittle is something that fails before it starts to plastically deform. So it breaks like chalk? Yeah. Ductile is something that stretches, 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 stretches until it breaks like silly putty if you pull it slowly. If you pull silly putty rapidly, it fails brittly. Right. So that's, that's viscoelasticity, which is another topic. So the ideas of strength, of brittleness, ductility, also combine for toughness with how much energy can you dump into a material before it fails. So say you have a, um, a bomber wing. You want to make that wing very tough. You want it very to be tough. able to take a lot of flak and a lot of bullets and stuff without failing. You can replace it once it lands and gets back home safely. But while it's flying, you don't want it to fail. Or a car bumper as well. A car, well, that has nothing to do with science. That has to do with, um, you know, MBAs and, you know, when was the last time your bumper survived anything? <laughs> True. And, like, there's crash zones and stuff. But, okay, all right. I'm, ju I'm just trying to, like, imagine, like, because I can see instances where, where strength is important. Yes. But I, I guess I'm having a harder time visualizing. Right, and you want, you want buildings to have toughness because you want them to be able to absorb a lot of damage before they fail. Right. And if you can engineer in the, um, the toughness, uh, then you can make something last for 100 years instead of two months. Right, bridges and stuff. Perfect example is concrete. Yeah. And this is, this is how I tell my students how to appreciate toughness. Toughness is kind of the, one of those unusual concepts that's really hard to grasp, kind of like electricity is, right? right. Electricity is really tough. You know, what, how, do you, how do you believe in an electron, right? Well, the answer is stick your finger in a socket, <laughs> right? right? You'll start <laughs> believing in what an electron is. Yeah. And so to start believing in toughness, um, I mean, I learned this when I was building a deck off my house and I had concrete steps that went down from my house, and I had to remove those steps before I put the deck up. Okay. And I figure, oh, I know a lot about materials. Concrete's really weak in tension. No, no problem. I know where this is going. Put on my safety goggles, got some gloves and a sledgehammer, uh -huh. and I started going at it. I figured it would take me about 15 <laughs> minutes to probably knock out all this concrete. <laughs> and so I started hitting it and hitting it, and an hour it. later, although I made lots of chips, it, nothing happened. It just <laughs> hitting it and hitting it, and I was tired. Finally, after two hours of going at this, I realized what was going on because I was a little slow. <laughs> and the builder, this was built back in the 50s. They built things better back then. They built this the way they built roads. There was rebar oh, inside. Oh, rebar, right, right. Concrete is a composite. Concrete has lots of little it's called an aggregate it's got lots of little pebbles mixed with concrete that gives concrete its strength 
but concrete is still brittle. Once you get a crack moving in it, that crack will just go right through the material and the whole thing will fall break in two. And that brings up the whole topic of fracture toughness, which is a different kind of toughness. But it's still the concept of toughness is the same. I've got um, a ceramic knife in my kitchen, and it holds an edge forever. But for God's sakes, don't drop it on a tile floor. That's right. That's exactly right. Because that doesn't have a reinforcing component like yeah. a fiber. So yeah. fiberglass. Right, fiberglass is a really strong, very tough material. If yeah. you just took epoxy by itself, it's strong, but it's very brittle. Right. Okay. And if you took just the glass fiber by itself, it's only strong in tension, but don't try to make anything out of it because it'll all, you know, float away like a piece of cloth. Right. But right. you put those together and you get the value of both in a composite. And composites okay. are real simple. You just use the law of averages to uh, give you the property of the composite. But what a composite does, what rebar does in concrete, if a crack propagates through concrete and hits one of these steel rebars, the yeah. crack stops. You stop the crack. And you need to keep building up crack density all over the place until you can get over the hump of those bars. And it's tough to do. That's why they call it toughness. Whoa. So if you want to feel toughness, try to break apart rebar. <laughs> so the final thing we need to talk about is what is this idea of fracture toughness. Fracture toughness has weird units. It's megapascals square root of meter. We should say like in physics they often have units of uh, squares of stuff or cubes of stuff, but the square root of something, that is, that's odd. That's right. That's unusual. But the reason it's that way, it's because of what's known as the stress intensity factor. Now, this is something else that's very easy to experience yourself. Say you had a long pair of scissors, right? Yeah. And you wanted to pretend you were cutting yourself. Where would you put your finger? Right at the section near your hand where you squeeze? Or would you put it way out at the tip where you can't apply all that much torque to it? you put it way out at the tip. You know if you want to cut something that's hard to cut, you jam it in right into the V, and then you pull really hard on those scissors. Yeah, and I don't really want to yeah. hurt myself, right. And, you know, that's just physics, right? That's just torque. You want to be able to apply the force along the longest moment arm to increase the torque at that point, because then the stress you're applying to the material is way higher at that point than anywhere else. I see. So now you put a crack in a material, and you start to pull it. So you load up the whole length of the crack, and it's being, all that torque is being applied to the yeah. tip of the crack. So people have worked out that the amount of energy or the amount of force you need to apply to a tip to increase the stress at the tip of that crack has to be a function of the applied stress you put on plus the crack length plus the crack tip radius. Okay. So the sharper the tip, the more stress you apply. And when you add all that up, you can calculate the stress intensity, which is going to be something like um, the square root of the length over the crack tip. And so that's where, that's where this thing comes in. It's the crack tip radius. So those weird units come in. But it's kind of like, um, it's, 
It goes back, you know, years ago when I taught engineering at University of Pennsylvania when I was a graduate student. That was back in the day when most engineers, you know, came from farms. All these farmers, they knew how to fix anything, right? right. And so I used to ask the question in class, if your engine block gets a crack in it, what do you do? Hands would go up and people would say, you take a drill bit and you drill a hole at the tip of the crack. At the tip of the crack, yeah. Right? And that they just knew yeah. from experience. Because what that did was that blunted the tip. So now the stress could be accommodated on a much larger surface area than a tiny crack. And you'd stop that crack from growing. Yeah, yeah. It does an end run around the, uh, the stress point of the crack. I get that. Yeah, I see that. So fast forward 10 years to University of Michigan. I asked the same question. And the, all these hands went up. And students said, you buy a new car. <laughs> so they've lost something about fracture toughness. Okay, so to sum this up, toughness is... How much energy can you dump in a material before it fails? Let me okay. leave you with one last image. And that's the image of this thing we call the Sharpie test, which has been around since the 30s, I think, or even longer. Okay. The Sharpie test is just another simple freshman physics experiment. Remember that thing called the pendulum? Sure. Yeah. Okay, well, you make a pendulum, but you make the head of the pendulum very heavy. Okay. And when you pull that pendulum up to a certain height, it has a certain amount of potential energy. Right. Mm -hmm. okay. Then what you do at the very bottom of the, the pendulum, the very bottom of the uh, travel, you put in a little tiny piece of material. And then the pendulum has a little bar that can break that material as it slams down. Okay. So you put your material in the bottom, you pull the pendulum up, and you drop it. And it's going to impale your material probably. And when you drop it, it blows through the material, and then it keeps going up, but it doesn't come up nearly as high as where you had dropped it from. So you simply have a little device that measures how high it gets, and then you look at the height differences. And apparently you've lost energy at some point as it was falling down through the material. So where'd that extra energy go? It went into breaking the material. Oh, so there you go. That's the toughness. And that is the simplest way. That is the simplest way to measure the toughness of a material. Do scientists still use this these days? Is this the same kind of apparatus? Well, they still use those. Wow. Yep. No, the Sharpie test is something we, we still use. But the Sharpie test is still a very, very valid test. And then when you take the material out, you can actually look at the microstructure of the material and tell whether it failed brittly or ductily or how, how ductile. I really thought the Sharpie test was, yeah, you need a special Sharpie marker. And I was wondering to see where you go with that. <laughs> no, no. It's not spelled the same way. The Sharpie test is C-H. Not SH. Cool. All right. Uh, it looks like we're just about out of time. Uh, so we have to thank you, our guest, Professor Steve Yalisov. Uh, today we learned about stress and strain, the difference between strength and toughness. We learned about elasticity, deformations, and much more. Uh, thanks for coming, Steve. Thanks a lot. No problem. And remember, I'm not an expert in all this, but I, I am an expert in trying to teach it to sophomores. <laughs> Fair enough. Awesome. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. What do you think, Gorad? Mailbag? Mailbag. Mailbag. 
So we're going to go back a bit here. Peter in Calgary writes us about our speciation episode, and he says in part that, I have a beef with one of the items you discussed. There was mention in there of humans evolving larger thumbs because of computers or losing their pinkies, etc. This was taken as proof that we're still evolving. Although mutations happen all the time, they only become dominant if there's some evolutionary advantage. If someone with a longer thumb was more likely to reproduce, then over time the thumb would grow. The same goes for any feature. Then, as an example, he says, Humanity will not lose its pinky unless people with stubby pinkies are sexy and make lots of babies. <laughs> people with long pinkies are gross and rather than mating, will spend their time in the basement alone playing World of Warcraft. <laughs> or people with stubby pinkies are more likely to live to reproductive age as longer pinkies are fatal. The above example may be a bit extreme, but it illustrates that in an age of there's a match for everyone and science should be able to cure all, we've removed the evolutionary pressures from our society. So yeah, thanks for that, Peter. Um, we were indeed speculating there, if I remember correctly, weren't we, Orit? I Well, I was telling the story about my high school economics teacher who was talking about how scientists had predicted at the time when she was in high school, which was probably in the 60s or 50s, that we would grow really big thumbs because we use computers. And, but yeah, you know, it, it's good that you called us out on it. Like, we like that kind of stuff. We'd rather be corrected than stay wrong. So, you know, thanks a lot for the email peter it was actually a funny email as well so we appreciate it yeah if you have anything to tell suggestions questions corrections you can always email us at emails at yet another science show.com and if you're in the u.s call us and leave a voicemail at 774-300-YAS that's 774-300-9277 you can also follow us on twitter at yas podcast and you can like us on facebook at facebook.com slash yet another science show all this information and more is available at yetanotherscienceshow.com. And incidentally, if you have any friends who are into science a little or a lot, please tell them about our show. Yeah, we're trying to grow our listenership, and it can only work by word of mouth. So you telling one person to subscribe on iTunes or to like us on Facebook, that would help us so much. So please think about it. Thanks for listening. From Montreal, Quebec, I'm Jess. And from Cambridge, Massachusetts, I'm Orad. See you next time. 